Of course, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that were turned in this morning. So take your Bible and plan on turning from passage to passage because we won't be able to stay just in one passage. And so let's begin. We happen to have uh, two or three questions from the book of Ezekiel. So let's begin there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And let's turn to Ezekiel 46 for the first question of the evening. Ezekiel chapter 46. And in verse 16 of Ezekiel 46, we read this, Thus says the Lord God, If the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. And then it goes on to give some more stipulations. The question is simply this. Who is the prince referred to in Ezekiel 46, 16? Is this the millennial kingdom? Well, let me answer the second question. Yes, I believe uh, that Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 are all about the future millennial kingdom. The millennial temple... Uh, the sacrificial system in the new millennial temple as an ordinance very similar to what we would call the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, as a remembrance, not, uh, not as a sac sacrifices to cover sins, etc., that type of thing, but as a reminder to the people of Israel what they should have known in their sacrificial system. And I will say this, just as a parenthesis, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult sections of Scripture, however you take it. Uh, but I do think that the best interpretation or approach is that Ezekiel 40 through 48 is futuristic. It's about the millennial kingdom and a millennial temple and so forth. So in answer to your question, is this the millennial kingdom? Yes, I believe it is. So who is this prince referred to in Ezekiel 46, 16? Well, uh, just some information on this prince. Uh, this term, prince, is used 14 times in chapters 44 through 47. Now, if you look at all of those references, and I looked at several of them. I don't know that I could say I looked at all 14 this afternoon. But uh, if you just jot down basic facts about this prince, here are some basic facts. Number one, he is clearly not the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you read all of the, the verses where he is mentioned, he has sins for which he must sacrifice. Uh, he begets children. Sons, and that's Im implied here in verse 16. He cannot enter the east gate of the temple, which the Lord used. He, he cannot perform priestly duties. So those are sort of the limitations of this prince, but I wouldn't want to give the impression he's obviously a dominant figure in this section, so we wouldn't want to minimize who this is. Um, and if you add up all the, the verses together and the information about him, and I only mention those sort of negatives just so that we don't assume that this is uh, the king of the kingdom, which would be the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, but a very important person during the kingdom age, uh, probably the one who administrates the kingdom, representing the king and some of the other heads of the tribes of the people. So in answer to the question, who is this uh, prince referred to. Well, he's not specifically named. We don't know who this is or who this will be. Uh, it appears he is a descendant of David in David's line. Very prominent person in the kingdom. 
but the limitations I mentioned earlier would indicate that we shouldn't take this as a reference to the Lord Jesus himself, the one who will be ruling with a rod of iron during the kingdom. All right, next question is on Ezekiel 36. So go from 46 uh, back to 36. Not the same person. This different people asking about Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 24, which says, uh, by the way, this is the, n- the new covenant passage or promise in Ezekiel, also reiterated in Jeremiah 31. Uh, but this is Ezekiel's version of it, if you will. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 24, where God says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then verse 25 begins the spiritual aspects of the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from your idols. I will give you a new heart, etc. And I'll put my spirit within you, verse 27. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, etc. So the question is, in Ezekiel 36, 24, regarding the gathering of the Jews, what is the time frame? Well, I believe, and I think it's safe to assert, that the beginning of this time frame began in 1948 with the establishment of the state of Israel. Uh, If you know anything about your recent history, there has been a major influx of Jewish people back into the land. Now you say, yeah, but they don't have a new heart. No, No, you're right. They don't have. They don't have yet. But it's interesting that God gives the covenant or the big picture of the covenant here in 36. But then the very next chapter, he sort of explains how it's going to happen and how it's going to unfold. And you have this famous vision of the dry bones. You remember that story of the dry bones coming together and then life is breathed into the dry bones? What is that indicating? Well, it's indicating that the restoration of the nation of Israel to their place of prominence will follow that pattern. That is, the dry bones will come together. Now remember, when the dry bones come together, they're still just dry bones. So they're not alive yet. So this is exactly the pattern that's indicated, or at least hinted at in chapter 36, and that is actually unfolding that way, that the dry bones are coming together. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, are heading back to Israel um, and even in spite of, if you, if you follow this kind of stuff, in spite of the violence that goes on there, even when violence is at its highest, the number of Jews that are flocking back to the land of Israel from all around the world just continue to increase. You would think, wow, with all that, you know, suicide bombers, they're not going to go back there. They just keep going back. Now, they're still just dry bones. They're still in unbelief. Uh, but that they eventually are going to experience what Ezekiel prophesy, or God says through Ezekiel in chapter 36. So the br- dry bones will come together. This will continue to go on. And then eventually God is going to breathe life into the dry bones. Uh, God is going to fulfill what he describes there in Ezekiel 36 of cleansing them, giving them a new heart, new spirit, etc. So the time frame, I think it's already happening. The, not the spiritual renewal part of it yet, but the gathering of the people into the land is already taking place, and eventually God will begin to accomplish the later, the other parts of those promises spiritually. All right, next question is on Ezekiel 40, verse 42. Ezekiel 40, 42, where we read, Uh, There were also four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, one cubit high. 
On these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offerings and the sacrifice. The question is this, in Ezekiel 40, 42, it talks about burning sacrifices. What is this time frame? It's, it seems like the temple is rebuilt, so I'm not sure if this is during the tribulation. Well, that's a good guess at it, but I don't think it is the tribulation temple. I think this is the millennial temple. And in fact, just to give you a little preview, if those of you who do the study notes, you may have noticed one of the questions uh, to sort of be thinking about for next week as we launch into Mark 13. How many temples will there be? Well, I believe there will eventually be four in total. There was the original temple, what you would call Solomon's temple. Then there was the temple that was rebuilt when the children of Israel were released from captivity to go back. You remember they rebuilt the temple and the older people wept because it was so trivial compared to the Solomon's temple in all of its glory, which is why many years later Herod decided to revamp it. And a lot of people think that Herod's temple was a third temple. It was not. It's not a new temple. It's just a rest, sort of a, a revamping of the temple complex. So that's still the second temple. Now there is no temple on the Temple Mount, but there will be a third temple. And because it is spoken of in, in Revelation, it's spoken of in 2 Thessalonians, it's spoken of in Matthew, that will be the tribulation temple. But then there will be another temple, a fourth temple, which will be the millennial temple. And if you were to compare Revelation 11, which gives specific dimensions of the tribulation temple, and you compare them with the dimensions given of the temple in Ezekiel 40, it's very difficult to assume that they're the same temple. So there will be a tribulation temple, I firmly believe, and then there will be a different temple, which would be much lar larger, more grandeur, uh, grandiose, uh, and it will be the millennial temple. So... Uh, this, again, I already mentioned this, Ezekiel 40 through 48, very difficult passage of Scripture. You can read various scholars' takes on it, their, their various takes on it, uh, but I believe that it is describing the millennial period, a millennial temple, yes, which will have sacrifices. Uh, and a lot of Christians sort of recoil at that. Well, there was only one perfect sacrifice. That's right. There's only one, uh, but the sacrifices, even the Old Testament sacrifices, weren't efficacious, Right? I mean, the writer of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So these are not going to be efficacious sacrifices, but memorial sacrifices. All right, next question uh, says this. Um, uh, let's see. Of the four Gospels, Mark seems um, to contain the least post-resurrection material or appearances. That's right, of Christ. Especially since verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16 don't appear in all early manuscripts. What is a good answer or explanation for someone who uses this, these facts as possible evidence that the Gospels tell an evolved, convenient story? Why might Mark have minimized what Luke and John expanded? That's a very good question. Uh, and I would just a general answer, I would say this. Um, this issue, like so many other issues when it comes to biblical studies, uh, will depend on your orientation. And what I mean by that is, uh, for example, uh, I've often heard it said, and I appreciate this uh, honesty, uh, I've often heard it said by a lot of people in creation ministry that when it comes to the issue of evolution and creation, we all have the same evidence. It just depends on how you interpret the evidence. In other words, you go to the Grand Canyon, you look at all these layers, and you say, oh, 
millions of years, this little Colorado River running down through the canyon created this massive canyon, and you've got all these layers, and then so this is proof for millions of years. Of course, if you're uh, someone who believes in a flood, you say, oh, wow, we've seen other examples uh, even more recently, like Mount St. Helens, where, where in a very short period of time, you have this exact same scenario. So this is evidence, actually, of a global flood and a massive uh, rush of water through here that created this. That's why you find fossils, because to have fossils, it has to happen quickly and all this. So again, same data, same material. How do you interpret it? Now, that same principle applies here to this question. Uh, If you are, so I would say this, if you're someone who doesn't believe in inspiration then you're going to take the differences in the gospel accounts and probably spin it the wrong way. Uh, you can use it to try to buttress your view that, well, they have contradictions and they, they, you know, they don't really complement each other, etc. Or if you believe in verbal plenary inspiration, then you say, oh, well, the simple answer to this question, uh, why is Mark different from Matthew and John or Luke and John or whichever, uh, is because... Mark wrote what the Holy Spirit wanted him to write. Now, that, that is a simplistic answer, and we could, we could add more to that. We could say this. We do know this from studying the Gospels, that each Gospel writer had an audience in mind. Matthew the Jews, Mark the Romans. We saw that this morning, where Mark, when he mentions mites, the, the widow's mites, those were Jewish coins, he knows that many of his readers, being Romans, would not know what a mite is, so he says it's like a quadrans. So we know Mark was focusing on Roman readers. Luke, Greek readers. John was more universal in his scope. So uh, another way to explain, rather than saying, well, this is evidence for the Gospels being an evolved, convenient story. No, each had an audience. Each had a specific goal, wanting to present Jesus to his audience. And therefore, that would answer why they included certain material and why they left out certain material. But I think there's even more of an explanation as to why Mark did what he did as opposed to John, Luke, etc. And that is this. And this one's a little more complicated. Uh, we do know with, with a high degree of certainty that John's gospel was the last one written, written very late. But when it comes to the other three gospels, it is extremely difficult to date them as to was Matthew written before Mark, Luke? In other words, did did Mark have Matthew already when he wrote his gospel, or did Matthew have Mark already when he wrote his gospel? That's more difficult. But just suffice it to say that another possible explanation for the differences is if Mark wrote his gospel after Matthew, or after Luke, or after Matthew and Luke, depending on which date you would affix to it, then that would help explain, too, why Mark's is different, is because he knew that those other gospels had that material in it. And he knew those gospels would be available. So he didn't feel the need. He was already, by the way, uh, very redundant. Not in a bad way, but it's amazing. I did not realize this till I started preaching through Mark. I mean, I knew there were synoptic gospels. Synoptic means soon together with that they're very similar. But I really did not know how similar, especially Matthew and Mark are, until I started preaching through Mark. Because sometimes their wording is almost identical. I mean, they'll have the exact same number of verses to cover an incident. Like four verses. And the wording is identical. And so uh, if Mark happened to be written later than Luke, not John. John was clearly written later. 
then that would explain why Mark decided, you know what, Dr. Luke already put all of those post-resurrection stories. I don't need to do that. I want to do a different theme for my audience, etc. So all that to say that there are a number of explanations as to why Mark included what he included, excluded what he excluded, without having to come up with this idea, well, it's an evolved, convenient story. In other words, putting a, for lack of a better way to say it, maybe a, a liberal spin on it or a, a spin of uh, anti-miraculous, not accepting verbal plenary inspiration, etc. So a number of explanations, even if you don't hold an inspiration, that would help understand why Mark did what he did as opposed to the other Gospels. All right, next question is on 1 Corinthians 1.18. So turn over into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1. <clears throat> and verse 18 says, in my version, and yours, depending on what you have, will read similarly or maybe different because that's the question. Uh, but verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right, here's the question. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the King James Version says, To those who are saved, not who are being saved. The New King James and other English translations say those who are being saved. People use this verse... Now, here's the question, or the statement in question. People use this verse to point out the superiority of the King James Version by asking the question, are you saved, or are you just being saved? So you understand the question. In other words, they, they're saying the King James Version is the inspired one because it's, it's not a question of are you being saved. Are you saved, or are you not saved? So that's the, the, what they're saying. So... What kind of response do we give to this? Well, the fact of the matter is, if you happen to be a King James Version, you know, uh, champion where you believe that's the only good version, the only inspired version, this would be the worst example to use to try to support that. Because the fact of the matter is, is that this is a present passive participle in the Greek, which means that the best English translation is being saved. It is not, the best translation is not, you are saved. Uh, so the NIV, the ESV, the New King James, uh, NASB, all those that say uh, to those who are being saved are right. So again, it's a terrible example to try to use to prove the King James is better. Because even though it may sound better to say, well, are you saved or are you not saved? The fact is, it's, it's a poorer translation on this verse. Now, I'm not knocking the King James. The King James version was a very good translation for its day, and it's lasted over 400 years. So I'm not an anti-King James, but the, the, the view that says the King James is the true inspired English, is, it's totally ostrich mentality. It's sticking your head in a hole in the ground and ignoring the facts. Because the facts are that the King James is not the most superior English translation. It's a good one. People who use it, I don't try to talk them out of it. It's a good one. But those who say, well, if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me, uh, show, you know, what their mindset is because it wasn't used by the Apostle Paul. All right, next question says this. Um, why don't we use any creeds or catechisms in our church services? Well, the answer to this question is twofold. First of all, uh, to, to back up why don't we, I would say you, you would want to ask, ask the question, why should we? Now, in asking why should we, I'm not implying that we shouldn't, that there's anything wrong with it, 
But in other words, if you're going to use it, then what do you use it in place of? Because everything you do in a church service takes time, whether it's three minutes, five minutes, or whatever. So if you're going to use a creed or a catechism, then you have to say it, it is better than what, it's a better use of our time. You know, we only have an hour and 15 minute services in the morning, hour in the evening. So uh, it's a better use of our time than A, B, C, or whatever. And uh, I'm not sure, as leaders were convinced, it's a better use of our time than, you know, the reading of Scripture, ex- uh, exposition of Scripture, the singing we do, etc. So that's the one angle to look at it. The other angle is um, one of the reasons why we don't use any creeds or catechisms. And I'm not saying that this is automatic or this, this is the fault of the creeds or catechisms. But it is, I think most would have to admit, that it is very easy if you're in a setting where uh, a church uses creeds and catechisms as a part of their service, and it's just every week you say the same creed, it just becomes mindless. And it just, you just, I mean, how many churches have you ever been in? And I've been in them, so I'm sure a lot of you, if we all took time to, you know, kind of give our background experiences. I mean, how many times have you been in a church where, not, not even talking about a creed or a catechism, but we're talking about the prayer that Jesus taught as a model prayer, where you've heard someone say, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forget. And you just go through it, and you just can recite. And you look around, and people are just saying it while they're staring at the ceiling. It means absolutely nothing. And it's very similar to what Jesus warned about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, be very careful not to be characterized by vain repetition. Don't just do things where you just do them and do them and you don't think about what you're doing. Now, this is not only the case with creeds or catechisms. We can do it with our own church services, whatever style we use, so not picking on that. But I'm just explaining why we tend not to do that kind of thing. Uh, it's just because, one, we feel like the limited, u- the limited time we have, the way we use it is maybe more strategic than to use a creed or a catechism. And on the flip side of that, the tendency that there is when you regularly use a creed or catechism just to do it mindless and it's really difficult to get people not to do it mindlessly. So that's sort of our reason behind that. All right, next question is 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as, a, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. And here's the question. First Thessalonians 5, does the thief in the night refer to the rapture or the second coming? Are you ready for this? Neither. It's Neither. The, the thief in the night refers to the next part of your question, which is the day of the Lord. And Paul's specific, for when, for you yourselves perf- know perfectly, verse 2, that the day of the Lord so comes as the thief in the night. And that is a phrase that Paul did not feel the need to define because it has so much Old Testament history. It has so much in the Old Testament already that Anyone really familiar with the Old Testament knows that this phrase, the day of the Lord, is used repeatedly throughout Hebrew Scripture to refer to a day of severe judgment. And the reason it's called the day of the Lord, not because it's one day, uh, but it's sort of like, well, man had his day, now God is going to have his day. And his day is going to be a day of vengeance and wrath, extreme punishment. So if you want to use sort of contemporary terminology, uh, the thief in the night is not the rapture, it's not the second coming, it's the tribulation. 
It's the day of God's wrath. And that's the second part of this question. What is the difference between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the day of, of judgment. The day of Christ is only used a couple, two or three times in the New Testament and seems to be a reference to the day when Christ catches his church up to be with him. Commonly called the rapture. Paul called it the great gathering together under Jesus in the air. So distinct. If you just look at the usage, the day of Christ, the day when we're gathered to be with Christ, the day of the Lord is the day of vengeance and judgment, commonly known as the tribulation. All right, next question says this. How did Jesus know the widow only had two mites? Well, let me, I want to say this carefully. Let me play Jesus, and I will ask you a question. And if you answer me, then I will answer your question. You remember how you would do that kind of thing, right? Uh, Here's the same question. Because I thought about this one throughout the afternoon, and I thought of all the examples I could write down about how did Jesus know that when two of his disciples went to prepare Passover, that he would, as soon as they got inside the city, that there would be a man walking by with a pitcher of water on his head. And how did Jesus know, John 2, that he should not commit himself to those people because he knew what was in man? How did Jesus, and now some of these events, and you could just keep going, there are so many. Some of these, there are possible explanations. Maybe Jesus prearranged some things, some, you know. But frankly, there are too many of those in the Gospels that there's no way to explain them except to say that Philippians 2 tells us Jesus lived as a man. He set aside the independent use of his attributes of deity only to be used at the discretion of the Father. And there are just some passages in the gospel that I don't know of any other explanation other than that the Father allowed him to use his omniscience for that occasion. So how did Jesus know the widow only had two mites? Well, maybe you want to say, well, he knew this lady really well, and he knew she was down. That's possible. You can't rule that out. But because there are so many like that, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't interfere with my view of the humanity of Jesus and the fact that he lived like a man to believe that he knew that because he knew everything. And he, in his omniscience that the Father allowed him to access, knew that this lady was down to her last two mites. Our next question says this, uh, how can people who don't believe in Christ not do good things? Because they could still be nice to someone. Romans 8, 8 says, those in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see what this, I think this is a young person who wrote this. You see what this young person is wrestling with? Well, in a sense, you've almost answered your own question. Uh, When the scripture talks about total depravity, please understand, it is not saying that all unsaved people are as bad as they could possibly be. Because that's not true. All unsaved people aren't as bad as... There are some nice unsaved people. There are some nice grandmas who bake cookies for the little boys down the street. And they don't know the Lord. They're unsaved. They do nice things for the little boys and girls in the neighborhood. Total depravity does not mean that every unsaved person is as bad as he or she could possibly be. What it does teach is that every unsaved person is as bad off as he or she could be. Dead in sin, unable to do anything about your predicament on your own. That's why you quoted a good verse, Romans 8, 8, those in the flesh cannot please God. It's not denying that people, unsaved people can be nice. What it's saying is you can do nothing to earn you favor with God, earn you merit with God. You can do nothing to sort of make up for your sin, make up for your depravity. You can't do anything efficacious toward your salvation. You cannot please God. 
You can't do things that make him pleased that he says, oh, okay, I know you're a sinner, but now I'll just pretend you're not. And you did enough things that make me pleased so that now I'll just say you're okay. You can't do that. No unsaved person can. So if you're wrestling with how can people who don't believe in Christ not do good things, well, they can do good things. But those good things don't mean anything in relation to their standing with God or their salvation. All right, next question also from a youngster. Uh, What does it mean that the Pharisees devour widows' houses? It comes out of the text this morning. What it simply means is that they, the Pharisees would uh, basically steal, rob, not go in, you know, and tie them up, but through their system, they would rob widows. They would would totally take everything from them. So that devour is used, obviously not in a, a term of eating, you know, like devour, like you devour a steak or something, but it's used in a a symbolic way of totally taking everything that was theirs. All right, next question says this. A friend was divorced years ago, not by his or her choice at all, and not for reasons of infidelity to my knowledge. She, he, struggles with the issue of remarriage. The Bible's teaching on this, and the Bible's teaching on this. Is he, she, free to remarry based on this information, or is he, she, resigned to being single? Well, uh, I'll just use your phrase from your question. Based on this information, I, would, I wouldn't feel comfortable answering the question because it's not enough information. I do believe there are circumstances in Scripture where Scripture allows remarriage, but this doesn't give enough information to know. In other words, I think according to 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a believer and you're married to unbeliever and you seek to be the kind of spouse God wants you to be and the unbeliever departs, uh, Paul says, let the unbeliever depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. You're not bound to that marriage. I think, I believe there's freedom to remarry. Uh, but I don't know if that fits this situation. Uh, I also w- personally would not have any trouble performing this wedding ceremony of someone who was married, let's say, at age 21, non-Christian, two non-Christians. They get divorced. And at age 25, this guy comes to faith in Christ. He's now a new creation in Christ. His former wife has remarried, but now he's a new creation in Christ. Can he get remarried? I think so. Now, not every Christian would agree with that. But again, based on the information you, you've given here, it's so limited, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying yes or no uh, without more info. Our right, next question says, could you give some thoughts on how young single women can cultivate submission in their lives? It seems like there's an, an, an independence that is necessary for being an adult, making decisions, etc. Yet, if there's not a godly father figure to be under, how else could submission look? I'd appreciate your thoughts and maybe some practical examples. Uh, this is a young gal who's at this stage of life, and so it's commendable. She's wrestling through this. How, you know, I, I live on my own. I'm independent. But if I get married, I know that, you know, things are going to change, and now I have a husband, and I need to follow his leadership, etc. Well, I would say this. First of all, you're, you're already way ahead in the sense that you're already thinking about that because a lot of gals maybe wouldn't, and you could turn that coin over. Same thing goes for guys, by the way. A lot of young men don't think about how life is going to drastically change after you get married. You just live your life as a guy. You're maybe easygoing. You go do this, and, you know, and all of a sudden you get married. There's responsibility, and there's you know, less freedom, and life changes. Uh, so uh, I think... You know, the fact that you get, are giving thought to it is positive and even more practical. Well, you say you don't have a godly father, but hopefully you have godly men in spiritual leadership within the church family that you could at least model or practice that submission. And that. So if you're vo- involved in ministry, 
If you're a young single gal and you're involved in ministry, whatever it happens to be, uh, I don't, you know, college ministry, youth ministry, whatever, how do you relate to the men who are in leadership in that? Um, so that could be practice. Uh, but also I would say this. Remember that in Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about submission, don't forget that his definition of submission, when he sort of restates it at the end of Ephesians 5, he, instead of using the word submission, talks about the importance of respect. So as you're working through that or wrestling through that, just think of through, you know, how can I show respect to others? That's going to be good practice because that's one of the things that God calls on you as a wife in relation to your husband to show respect. So factor that in as you're wrestling through it. And I, other than that, uh, I have to admit, I haven't given a lot of thought to it because I was never in that stage of life as a young single lady trying to figure out what I would do when I got married. Hopefully I gave thought to what I would do as a young single man when I got married, but not as a gal. All right, next question says this. Uh, Let's turn to uh, Philippians 3. It's not a question out of Philippians 3, but I think Philippians 3 may answer it. It says, two weeks ago you preached from Mark 12, 29 and 30 regarding the greatest commandment. I know that I should obey this command, but I find it very difficult to do so. After spending time in prayer and study of God's word in the morning, I find that I often forget God for several hours of the day as I go about my work. I actually find that there is very little, if any time, in each day that I could rightly say that I'm loving the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. How can I keep this command? Well, I think the way you express that, you obviously have a desire to do that, and you're obviously, to the best of your ability or the best of your know-how, seeking to do that. You're pursuing that, if you will. So I would say the reason I had us turn to Philippians 3 is it sounds to me that you can relate to what Paul says here. Now, he doesn't specifically use the phrase loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but look how he describes in verse 12 of Philippians 3, not that I've already attained. Well, that's what you're saying in here. I see I'm not there Not that I ever attained or am already perfected, no. So I don't always love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, even though I want to. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Why has Christ laid hold of us? Well, to make us like himself. Or you could say he's laid hold of us so that we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm pressing toward that. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. That's why this question sounds very much like what Paul is saying. I'm not there. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So my encouragement would be that you're right where Paul was. Just keep pursuing then. Keep, Keep doing what you're doing. And in fact, he says in verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained... Let us walk by the same rule. And what Paul seems to be saying there is this. Listen, you haven't attained. You're not where you want to be. But by God's grace, you've made spiritual progress by doing what you've done. So keep doing those things. Keep doing the things that, have, that by God's grace have granted you the progress to get to where you're at. Keep doing them. That's the, and verse 16 is worded differently in various translations. It's not really clear when you first read what Paul is saying. But in the context, he does seem to be saying, listen, to the degree that we've already attained, that is, whatever, uh, whatever spiritual disciplines that God has used in our lives to help us get to where we're at in our progress, then keep doing those things. And they'll keep moving you along the path of sanctification 
or to say it the way this question is worded, it will keep moving you toward a greater love for God, toward the goal that we all have, the desire we all have, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by the way, the fact that we don't do this and that no one does this is really just, if there were any doubt, proof positive of our depravity. Because no matter how, going back to one of the earlier questions, can unsaved people do nice things? Yes. But do any unsaved people love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Absolutely not. So if you just take that one commandment alone, it proves that all of us are depraved and deserve condemnation. Because every one of us ought to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one does. Unbeliever, no unbeliever does, no matter how nice he is. So his niceness doesn't make up for his lack of loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for us as believers, we're not there either, but at least like Paul, hopefully we're pressing on and we're moving and we're making progress. And Paul says, just keep doing that then. Keep doing the things that God has used by his grace to grant you progress. You keep moving along the path. All right, next question says this. Which of these equations is theologically true? God equals the gospel. God is greater to or equal than the gospel. God is greater than the gospel. Is all of who God is revealed in the gospel? Or is there more of his person that is not manifested by the gospel? Well, some of you are probably familiar with Piper's book, God is the Gospel. Uh, And what Piper is suggesting there is that if you don't have a right view of God, you won't have a right view of the gospel. To To really understand the gospel, you need to understand the character of God. And that's true. So I'm not taking issue with the book. It's actually a great book. But I don't know that I would feel comfortable saying, if you're talking about equations, God is equal to the gospel. Of course, now it depends on how you're going to define gospel. If you're going to define it as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, here's the gospel I preached to you. Jesus died uh, for our sins according to the scriptures, buried, raised again the third day, etc. If that's how you define the gospel, fairly narrowly, that that's the gospel, then certainly I don't feel comfortable saying that's, God is equal to the gospel because there are many other things in the work of God, in the plan of God, that go beyond that. Now, the gospel is central. I don't want to in any way minimize the gospel. But God also has a plan for Israel. And we don't usually call that the gospel. It's, a plan, it's the Abrahamic covenant and the fulfillment of that. But that's not technically the gospel, at least the way Paul technically defined the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. God also has a plan to glorify himself through how his, his dealings with the spirit world of Satan, angels, and demons to condemn Satan and angels. According to Matthew 25, 41, hell was created for the devil and his angels. And God will be glorified by consigning them to hell. You don't really think of that as being part of the gospel. Creation, even though creation certainly is an integral part of Scripture, in the narrow definition of the gospel, it's not part of the gospel. And yet, creation is a marvelous display of God's glory. So, I, I, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying God is equal to the gospel unless your, your definition of the gospel is going to incorporate all of those other things. Um, the gospel is central. God, the gospel in a unique way, you may even say, maybe in the greatest way, reveals God's character, his person. It's manifested by the gospel. But so does creation. So does his judgment of Satan and demons. So does his plan of redemption for Israel. And all of those things are usually not included under the heading of the gospel. Unless you just want to say, in the most gene- general use of the term gospel, good news well, then all of that's good news, that Satan's going to be condemned and the, you know, the demons and, and that God's going to redeem Israel, etc. So if, if you define it that broadly, God equals the gospel. But if you define it more narrowly as the 
New Testament usually uses the term, I think, they're not equated. All right, next question. Uh, Pastor Brian, in 1 John, the author, John, seems to mention the phrase made complete multiple times. For example, 1 John 2, 5, God's love is truly made complete in him. 1 John 4, 12, his love is made complete in us. What does it mean that his love is made complete in us? Well, what it means, and if, you, if we had the time to go to 1 John and look at his usages, what he's saying is that God's love is, let, let me use an analogy, God's love reaches full fullness, full blossom in those situations. For example, like the 1 John 4, 12, uh, perfect love casts out fear. So when there is not fear, God's love is, is fully matured in us at that stage. It's, it is fully blossomed in us. And so uh, it's possible for God's love to be in us. That is, we love God and God's love to be in us. He loves us. But it not, you know, sort of like a rose that's still very tightly woven and hasn't fully opened up yet. But the person who 1 John 2, 5 or 1 John 4, 12 is living those realities, then God's love is fully blossomed. It's fully complete. That's how John seems to be using the phrase. So it's seen in all of its and experienced in all of its fullness. Our next question says this, uh, Pastor Brian, in Romans 2, uh, Paul is writing what real circumcision is in verse 29, where he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Now here's the question. Some people seem to take these teachings and talk about covenant theology and say Christians are the Jews and therefore the new covenant people of God. By the way, the technical term for that is replacement theology. We as Christians have replaced Israel. We are the new Israel, the true Israel. Those are the phrases you often use. So you're right on. That's a very common theology in Christianity today. Uh, Then this guy goes on to say, but in Romans 2, it seems to me that Paul's statements are directed at national Jews and is simply making clear that it isn't that what makes you right with God, being a national Jew. So which is it? Well, the neat thing about your question is, and I appreciate your accuracy here, is that the second suggestion you make is clearly the right one. And how do we know that? Well, if you just keep reading Romans and you get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, you will find that replacement theology cannot hold water. Because in Romans 9, 10, and 11, God ba- Paul basically says, listen, I'll just paraphrase, God is not done with Israel. He's going to fulfill his promises to literal national Israel. Just like what we read earlier from Ezekiel and Jeremiah. God is going to restore the nation of Israel and he is going to save them and redeem them. And the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be kept. In fact, Paul says in Romans 11, the gifts, talking about this subject, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You hear that? Irrevocable. God has never revoked on his promise to Israel. He's never said, you know what? You've blown it too much. I think I'll take the promises from you that I made to you, and I'm going to give them to the church. No. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He will fulfill his promises. So to try to use Romans 2 to say, uh, well, Christians are now the Jews because circumcision doesn't matter. It's only, that's something that's outward. It's true Jew is someone who's inward. So we have replaced the Jews. Doesn't even, doesn't square with all of the New Testament or the whole Bible, but it doesn't even square with Romans. Because in Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul makes it clear that the church has not replaced Israel. All right, next question says this. 
Pastor Brian, I've been giving some thought to the issue of evangelism. It seems that opportunities to share do not naturally arise very often. What is the balance between wanting to initiate but not forcing opportunities? Well, I think you use the right word here in your question, balance, because if you look at Jesus' example and Paul's example, John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. John 4, he initiates with the woman at the well. When it comes to the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus. You look at Paul's ministry. Where did he always start first? With the Jews in the synagogues. Why? Because he thought, hey, I have a better chance of success. And that's maybe a poor term, but in other words, these are people that read the Bible at least. They read the Old Testament so I can use it. I have a foothold to start with. And then even when he went to Gentiles, uh, like Acts 17, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, he went to people who, you know, they had this altar to the unknown God. So my point is simply that uh, you're right. A lot of times natural opportunities don't arise and we should initiate, but we'll also recognize that Jesus' example and Paul's example often was to try to find those who have at least some interest, some level of interest. I'm not suggesting we should not ever try to share the gospel with people who are completely disinterested. But again, if we take Jesus' example seriously and Paul's, they tried to go where they, to the best of their ability, could ascertain it would be more fruitful or most fruitful. So I appreciate the way you word this, not forcing opportunities, because though they talked with people who weren't interested in the gospel, if you look at their ministries as a whole, they didn't, I don't know that you could say they forced opportunities. They took every opportunity and they tried to initiate but I like the way you worded it, that there is a balance there. All right, a couple more here, and we'll be done. Next question says this, uh, Mark 13. Let's turn there to Mark 13, verse 30. This is where we'll move into, Lord willing, next week, the Olivet Discourse. Mark 13, 30, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And the question is, how does this fit? Because that generation has passed away, yet all of these things have not yet come to pass. The very simple answer to this is what Jesus was saying. If you read the whole discourse, and especially Matthew's account, he's saying, here's what's going to happen. And when all these things begin to happen, that generation will not pass away till all is fulfilled. So what is that generation? It's not the generation in the first century. It's that generation that is there when all these things start to happen. So very simply to say it this way, when all of the events of the tribulation period start, we're not, talking a lo- we're not talking 50 years. Well, we do know from Daniel 9, it's seven years. But Jesus' point was, once these things start to happen, that generation will not pass away until everything in God's plan is fulfilled. So don't read it as a reference to the first century, because that is not what it's referring to. It's referring to the generation living when those things begin to unfold. Okay, last sheet says this. Two questions. In Matthew 7, let's turn there. Matthew 7. This famous passage on do not judge lest you be judged, etc. You're all familiar with that one, verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about not judging. The section of 7, 1 through 6 is titled, Do Not Judge. Uh, How does verse 6 tie into judging? This is a great question. I love this question. Because verse 6 says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Again, let me just paraphrase. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus is saying this. Don't be hypercritical. 
Don't be hypercritical, because if you're hypercritical, people will be hypercritical of you. That's what he means. He's not talking about don't ever make judgments. The scripture is full of passages that tell us to make judgments, saying don't be hypercritical. If that's the way you are, that's the way you'll be treated. But then he turns around in verse 6. Let me just paraphrase verse 6. Don't be non-discerning. So I'm warning you not to be hypercritical, but don't swing the pendulum over here to where you give what is holy to the dogs. And of course, he's just using an analogy or or word picture. Nor cast your pearls before swine. So don't be so non-discerning, so accepting of everything that you have no discretion, that you make no judgment. So it's, it's the masterful way that our Lord often taught because he knows we tend to be pendulum people. And so he says, on the one hand, don't go over here and be judgmental, be hypercritical, but don't swing it over here and be totally accepting of everything, non-discerning, and casting your pearls before the swine. So it fits perfectly as sort of bookends to what Jesus was teaching. And then the final question of the night is back one or a couple chapters in Matthew 5. In Jesus' teaching, was this spoken to all disciples or to the twelve? Does reference, the reference to his disciples mean all disciples, learners of Christ, or just his intimate group? And the reason this question is asked is you can see in verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he, he was seated, his disciples came to him. So the question is, are these two distinct groups? So did he see the multitude? So he pulled away and only spoke to his disciples? No, I don't think that's how we take it. This, of course, is, is traditionally known, historically known as the Sermon on the Mount and understood as a sermon to a large group of people, multitudes of people. Uh, but you've sort of answered your own question that the word disciples often means in the Gospels, learners. Classic example you could jot down to look at on your own tonight would be John 6 where it says, after Jesus spoke these very tough words, that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. It's clear that they're unbelievers, but it calls them disciples because it's referring to them as just this crowd of learners, people who are listening to Jesus, learning from him, not necessarily committed to him. And in a similar way, Matthew uses the word, seeing the multitudes, Jesus thought, here's a prime opportunity to present truth to them. So he went up on a mountain so he could, his voice would project and he could teach multitudes. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. You know that rabbis always sat when they taught. So he sat down indicating he's going to teach. He sat up on a mountain where it would be a perfect uh, dynamic for speaking to a large crowd. And he taught all these learners. Not necessarily all were Christians, but all were interested in hearing what this rabbi had to say. All right, great questions. Thank you for those of you who turned those in. Lord willing, we'll do this next month. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, as we close our evening together, there's so much we could think about in closing to take with us, but maybe uh, a great way to end is, is right where we ended here in the Gospel of Matthew and the, the previous question before the last one on Matthew 7 about the importance of not being hypercritical, but also the importance of not lacking discernment and not being naive, not casting your pearls before the swine. And we want to acknowledge, we want to admit right up front that it is very difficult for us to strike that balance. We tend to be one or the other, very hypercritical, and then we say that's because we want to be discerning, but we're really more than discerning, we're hypercritical. Or we tend to just be so non-discerning that we accept anything and everything and we cast our pearls before the swine. So when we see what you've called us to be, what you've called us to do, we again are reminded that it's beyond us, beyond our own abilities. So we call on you, which you want us to do. 
And we ask you to help us to be your people who rightly represent you by being discerning, by being careful, uh, but not being hypercritical. Grant us the, the grace to strike that balance for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen.